Welcome back, guys. We're, we're here with you on the Heavy Branches Podcast. Tanner, how's your week been, bro? My week's been pretty good, busy. Um, the wedding is just, well, with the listeners hearing this, it'll be a week away. And, um, you know, getting exciting. There's a lot to do. Um, but, yeah, just a week away from being married. That's cool. How's your week been? So are you excited? Oh, yeah, very excited. Where are you, where are you going on your honeymoon? Uh, Florida, so... We'll be gone for a week, and um, speaking of that, uh, we might as well just go ahead and say it. We're going to record two episodes today. Yeah, <laughs> um, one for this Saturday, and then next Saturday, and then we're going to record another one next week for the Saturday that I'm gone while I'm on. Uh, we're going to try to stay ahead trip. of schedule. Um, that way, we don't miss a week with him being gone on his honeymoon because. I don't want to try to record from him with record an episode with him while he's out in Florida. You know, he's got a lot more important and fun things to be doing on his honeymoon than recording this podcast. So um, I'm going to let him have a nice, fun honeymoon and not have to worry anything about the podcast. So yep. we're recording a week in advance here, but um, my week has been good. Um, it has been a lot of sermon writing and preparing. I'm preaching the next two Sundays, so been busy with doing a lot of that of course uh delivering some chicken like i do every week with chick-fil-a which it, it it is what it is i mean it's not what i want to be doing for the rest of my life that's for sure but it's good to put gas in the gas tank and food in my belly while i'm finishing college so yeah we both get to preach this weekend which is which is cool so um i just want to thank you all for joining us again um we've Thank you all for the tremendous appreciation that we've gotten. Um, that's been huge. Um, and it's been very, very, what's the word I'm looking for? Encouraging for, for both of yeah, us. Yeah, definitely. So thank you very much. Jake, why don't you remind them about the platforms we're on? Alrighty. Well, we are on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and as of recently, we were now on YouTube. So whatever... Um, what's the word, streaming platform, I guess, or, or app you would like to use. We're on all four of those. Uh, and now we, I think I'm going to be able to start having our video up on Spotify. I'm, I'm hoping to be able to actually have that for this episode you're listening to right now. Okay. So if you're on Spotify, hopefully you'll be able to see us. Um, if you want to, to view it like that, you can also still view it just audio. But um, those are going to be our platforms we're on is YouTube, Spotify, uh, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Yeah. Uh, again, let's. I want to remind you all to mark your calendars. We have the family rally at Grissom, October 27th through the 29th. We've been mentioning that since we started. Uh, that's a weekend event designed to bring people together for fellowship, uh, for teaching and learning, for worship and encouragement. The other thing, well, there's two other things. The National Prayer Clinic, October 10th through the 12th. That's in Grundy, Virginia. And then the last thing, the LBC winter spring semester is the 8th through the 15th, either starts the 8th or the 15th of January. Uh, I don't know the exact date, but uh, like we said last week, and we'll continue to say, LBC has a lot of other uh, available options for taking classes like modules or um, online classes, whatever Whatever fits you, fits your schedule, you know, LBC can probably work it out. So if you're interested in taking some classes there, we would highly recommend it. And, uh, yeah, uh, speaking of LBC, pretty exciting news from them. They just paid off their debt this 
this past week. Yeah, and absolutely huge for the school. That's been an ongoing thing since uh, at least for the last eight or nine years, probably. So huge deal. Pay the school is debt free, and you know they're they're going to be making strides to make the school a a even better place than it already is. And now that the debt is paid off, um, if what I understand from President Allen is correct, there's there's two main focuses they're going to have with with their finances now because we've they've been regularly you know making regular payments to get the debt paid off and yeah they, they've been open at once the debt's paid off and they can allocate that those financial resources somewhere else we're going to be focusing on um, student recruiting and and helping that area of the school and then the second area of improvement they're looking at is um, with the technology side yeah so I don't know exactly what that means um, I don't know if like they're going to revamp the website or or what I don't know exactly what they're planning to do on the technology side, but those are the two areas that, um, if I'm remembering right, President Allen said we were going to focus on once the the debt was taken care of. So it's a huge blessing. Yeah, both of those will be good for uh, students. Uh, very helpful for students, especially new students. So um, let's hop into Luke. We're going to be in chapter four. Be sure to read Luke chapter four. Uh, and to continue in the context of chapter or of Luke, uh, last week we we read and, and covered about John, how he his ministry and how he prepared the way through preaching. And we read some about Jesus, how he was baptized to fulfill all righteousness. And those were really uh, the two big, big focuses of the chapter last week. So now we jump into Luke chapter 4. There are 44 verses. He's going back up. <laughs> um, yeah, we were trending down for a few weeks in a row. He's kicking it back up now. So uh, going, going back up. Uh, and so the chapter title this week is The Kingdom of God is Here. You know, John's sermons were preaching the kingdom of God is coming, so repent. Jesus is now here. His ministry has started, and he's preaching the kingdom of God is here. What are you going to do about it? <laughs> um, and so as we as we hop into the chapter, be thinking about that. Uh, the first thing, as we look at Luke chapter 4, we see in verse 1, the Bible says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness. And then I want to go ahead and read verse 18. These are, these are the words of Jesus, and he is uh, quoting an Old Testament scripture. It says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. And then he goes on to finish that. But what I wanted to point out, and it's something that we didn't mention last week, but Jesus' baptism is the moment where God anoints him with the Holy Spirit, and to be anointed, um, typically anointing was with oil poured over the head. Yeah, um, it was in the Old Testament done to kings, priests, and prophets, and we see Jesus take all three of those roles now. And he is given this special anointment by God, uh, the, uh, as we read the dove, the spirit comes down upon him like a dove, um, and that is just the the basically you could call it a Holy Spirit anointment. And, and I want to make sure we we make this 
clear and don't cause any confusion here. Jesus wasn't any less divine um, before his baptism than he was after. Um, his anointing of the Spirit it wasn't that he didn't have the Spirit of God beforehand. It was just, um, it was it was kind of like a public showing of, of the Spirit being anointed. Yeah. And so we called Jesus the Christ, but many forget what that means. Yeah. And Christ means God's anointed, and this is where we see he is anointed. You know, it's not just a known thing, but it's God actually shows us Jesus being anointed. And typically people are, we said before, typically people are anointed with oil. Jesus was anointed by the Spirit. Um, and this fulfills the prophecy that Jesus quotes in verse 18. Um, which is why I wanted to read that as well. It fulfills the the first part of that where it says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Uh, and because, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. So we see that the anointing is like Jesus being set apart to fulfill a certain task. Yeah, and so we see Jesus was anointed to preach, proclaim, heal, and, f- and free to uh, proclaim the kingdom of God. And That's, all four of those things are mentioned in that verse 18 and the beginning or and verse 19 where he is quoting that scripture. He's talking about preaching. He's talking about proclaiming, healing, and proclaiming the kingdom of God. And the last thing on there was the two set free those who are oppressed. Yes. Yeah. Is what you, that's what I think that's what you're looking for. Yeah. And there. to free and to free uh, people uh, for the kingdom of God. So the oppressed um, is the world really by sin? So um, that is Jesus's purpose. That's how. That's what we're going to see as he goes on through his ministry, through his life, and that's what we're going to see is the point of every message that he preaches, everything that he does, the healings and all of it, is to preach the kingdom of God and prove that he is the Christ and that the way to enter the kingdom of God is through him. And we'll talk about more of that later. But anoint, he was anointed to be the Messiah, which is the entrance to the kingdom that he's preaching about. The next thing I wanted to mention is we get into this long section of chapter 4 where Jesus was tempted. I expected this to be your, uh, your chapter, chapter title, I was expecting like uh, lessons in temptation or, or something along those lines. This is a really big section here. It is, and I thought about it, but I think it's really important that we realize that even this temptation that we read about is within the the purpose of Jesus' ministry in that this is showing us still, this is still pointing that um Jesus' purpose is to preach the kingdom. It's still showing that his purpose um, is not only to preach the kingdom, but to prove that he is the Christ and he remains perfect. And that is uh, one of those things that defines him as the Christ and the reason that he can be our Savior. Yeah, and him being perfect doesn't mean that he w- he was never tempted. Yeah. It's not that yeah. um, because he was God, he just never even faced the desire to sin or the temptation to sin. Um, he, he was tempted in every way that, like we are. Absolutely. So Jesus was indeed tempted. The first thing 
I really noticed when I read through it this time, you know, I've read it several times and it seems that the focus always, for whatever reason, tends to be on how Jesus responds and not so much on what Satan is doing. Mm. Um, So I wanted to, before we get into how Jesus responds, I wanted to, to talk about how Satan is actually doing the tempting. First of all, notice that when the devil strikes, notice when the devil strikes here upon Jesus. It is just after he's been baptized. It is just after this great anointing. And so he goes out into the wilderness for 40 days after this great thing has happened happened to him. And now the the devil is, is tempting him. And you know, you sometimes you wish that the devil only tempted you after something good happened, <laughs> um, because but the devil tempts any time. That's what I mean by that. You don't want the devil yeah. to tempt you at all. So let me <laughs> let me say that first. But he, the point I'm making is he takes advantages of he takes advantage of many opportunities, and, and he finds opportune times. Jesus was in in the wilderness for forty days. Here he hadn't eaten. So he was alone, he was hungry, and I've never not eaten for 40 days. I've, I've, I've not eaten for a full day, and man, I start to get pretty crabby. <laughs> so I, ca- I can only imagine after a full month of not eating, I, my flesh will be pretty weak. Yeah. And, and I think Satan knew that, and he chooses opportune times to, to tempt us when we are weak and susceptible to falling into that temptation. So it's something to, to be on the lookout for. So Satan's going to take advantage of when things are good. As we see, you know, something good had just happened to Jesus. Uh, and he's really going to take advantage of opportunities when something good happens for God in your life. And then Satan's trying to take you down as soon as that happens, because the longer you're doing something good for God, the worse it is for him. And think about think about it this way: if if we're we're a Christian and we're not really bearing any fruit, mm-hmm. we're not really doing anything to advance the kingdom of God. Are we really a threat to Satan? Think think about that for a minute. Your 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 soul is saved. You're a Christian, and Satan doesn't want that. But if we're not doing anything to to help other people get to that point, if we're not bearing any fruit, if we're not having an impact on the kingdom, we're not really that big of a threat to Satan because Satan wants as many people as possible to not be in the kingdom of God, to not be a Christian. And so if we're not helping to improve and advance that, Satan, he's not really going to care what we do. But when we're doing great things for the Lord, not to put ourselves on a pedestal or come from a place of, of being prideful, but when we are really being intentional about making disciples and, and sharing our faith and, and, and doing work and labor for the Lord, we're putting our tar- uh, a target on our back for Satan because he doesn't want that to happen. Yeah. So he's going to take advantage when things are good. He's going to take advantage of when things are bad. Job is a great example of that. Mm-hmm. Um, the whole point of... Satan tempting Job was to prove that Job was not a righteous man. 
Satan's goal there was to get Job to turn his back against God. And we see it didn't happen. Job was faithful. But the point is, Satan is going to use those bad moments to try and take advantage and tempt you. So let me share with you something that I've, I've been thinking about the past, the past couple months. I think Satan learned a lot from his whole temptation with Job. Okay. So Job had all kinds of, of, of good material things. Yeah. And Satan's method of temptation for him was to take it all away. And so we see what happens is is Job loses his family, he loses, you know, his 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 money, his possessions, his wealth, his his houses. Satan takes all that away from him in, a, in an attempt to get him to sin against God and to and to leave the faith. And Job remains faithful because the one thing Satan couldn't take away from Job was God. Hmm. And Job continued to rely on on the Lord. Yeah. And so I think Satan has learned from that. I'm not saying I don't think he doesn't try to take things away from us today, whether it be money or, or family or possessions, but I think he's almost reversed his strategy. And and what he's done is he's trying to get us to be content, so content with everything that we have that it, it removes our, our focus from from spiritual, eternal things, things that truly matter. That's really as, as, Especially in America. You know, we don't ever have to wonder where our next meal is going to come from. Yeah. We don't, I, I don't ever have to worry about not having a bed to sleep in at night or a roof over my head or, or clothes to wear to keep me warm. Um, what I do have to worry about is being so content with the, the blessings that I have that I just forget to give God glory and honor and credit for all of that. And so I think maybe what Satan has learned from his temptation with Job is that maybe the the best strategy isn't to take everything away to get us to to not to get us to renounce our faith in God. Maybe it's not to take everything away, but maybe it's to give us everything that that we think we need so that we forget about what's truly important and spiritual things. That's really interesting and we're actually when we get into these next few Verses where Satan actually starts tempting Jesus, you actually see that strategy, and and we'll we'll get there. I just want to say two more things about uh, Satan taking advantage. The last two are Satan is going to take advantage when we're busy, when mm. things are busy. Definitely, uh, that's a that's when you're caught up in so much that you can't focus on God. Satan's going to be all over that. And then the last thing is he's going to take advantage when things are slow and in your laziness. Yep. <laughs> and there is not, there is really just not a moment of life, busy or not busy, slow, fast, lazy, um, good, bad. Satan is going to find a way to take advantage and try to tempt you in that moment. And <clears throat> it's important that we realize how Satan does that. And we learn three ways that Satan tempts in this passage. And this is why I wanted to focus on what Satan actually is tempting Jesus into. Because then we better understand why Jesus responds the way that he does. 
Because if you just look at how Jesus responds, the common way that we look at it and the common way we're taught is, you know, Jesus used Scripture to repel Satan's temptation. Yeah. True. That That is exactly right and a wonderful lesson that we should all understand. But why does he choose the specific verses that he chooses in defense of these temptations? Okay. So let's look at, you know... We're looking at verses 3 through 13 here. There are three lies, three deceptions that Satan tells Jesus. The first one in verse 3, Satan tries to deceive Jesus about who he is by trying to get him to prove it. So let's just read that together. Verse 3, And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, that is such an important part of this. If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Satan is trying to deceive Jesus about who he is by asking him, if you are the Son of God, prove it. Only The Son of God would prove it, is basically what Satan is saying. Yeah. But Jesus knows better. See, Satan knows us. Satan knows you and me. And he knew Jesus. And he knew he Jesus. Knew who he was. But he tries to convince us otherwise. And boy, do we see that in the world today. People are so confused about who they are. Jesus says about Satan in John chapter 8, verse 44. I know we're not in John, but I think this is so relevant. He says, You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning. So Satan wants to, wants to destroy and kill. Yeah, He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So the testimony of our Lord about our enemy, Satan, when he lies, when he speaks, his native tongue, his native language is falsehood and deception. When when Satan is is putting these thoughts in your mind, questioning, saying, who really are you? And he's trying to get us to be confused. Remember what Jesus said about him. He, he is a liar and the father of all lies. Yeah, he's constantly lying, constantly trying to convince us otherwise. And see, what we see here is Jesus knows how Satan is tempting him. Jesus knows how Satan is trying to tempt him and therefore knows how he should respond. And so his response, we see in verse 4, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. That means that man shall not live relying and trusting on the bread, relying and trusting on themselves or relying on trusting on anything of this world, but they should rely and trust in God. That is where we find our identity. And Jesus knows that. In the Father. That's who he's speaking of. Man shall not live on bread alone. He's saying, I'm not going to, I don't find my identity in the things of this world or in, I'm not confused about who I am because I'm the Father's. Yeah. And so we see the perfect response to this lie of Satan, but we wouldn't know why Jesus used that scripture if we didn't first understand what Je- what Satan is trying to deceive. Mm. So my question for 
you know, everybody listening for you, for myself, is do you trust you are God's? And do you find identity in Christ? Because if not, Satan has an open door to convince you otherwise. He has an open door to convince you that you are something other than God's. You are, he has an open door to convince you that you are not created in the image of God, but that there is no God at all. I mean, you, this goes... This, this temptation goes so many ways and has so many levels to it that we could talk about for a long time. Yeah. But be, be aware of this lie. The second lie that Satan tells, the second way he tries to deceive Jesus, we see we, he picks up in verse 6. And the Satan says to him, I will, Satan says to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory for it has been handed over to me and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall be yours. So Satan tries to deceive Jesus about who is in, who is in control of things. He's trying to deceive Jesus about who is in control of things and about the worth of those things about the worth of worldly things, power, um, just things of the world, and, and not just power, but, you know, things that you can gather, wealth, any whatever whatever it might be. That is, that is the deception here. And Satan knows, Satan, deep down, you know, he knows who is really in control, and that's God. He knows that. He knows he's only got a short time. He knows that his time is running out. Jesus also knows this. And Jesus knows the lie that Satan is trying to to use here. And so Jesus responds in verse 8 by acknowledging who is actually in control. It's not Satan is not the one that's actually in control. And so Jesus answers, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. That's who I worship. That's who I know is in control. Not Satan. Amen to that, brother. And then the third lie. The father of lies. Trying one more time. He Satan tempted Jesus more than just three times. There's a common misconception about that. But in this scripture, three times that we that well, we really see. It tells us at the end that he was going to come back at a different opportune time, I and, believe. And it says that the devil had finished every temptation. So, you know, however you want to take that. So, anyway, this third lie. Now that Jesus has shown Satan, he is... Uh, now that Jesus has shown Satan who he is, meaning Jesus has proven that he is in uh, that he is the Father's, he has proven that he knows that the Father is in control. In the first two responses, Satan changes his deceptive, deceptive tactics, hmm. and he we were just talking about him changing tactics. So he's throwing the curveball here. Yeah. By this, and so this time, Satan tries to deceive Jesus about who God is and what God's word actually says. 
So instead of trying to deceive Jesus about who he is, and instead of trying to deceive Jesus about who's in control, he is now trying to deceive Jesus about who God is. And he does so by saying, and actually quoting scripture, Satan says, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you, and on their on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Satan knows what God's word actually says. And he even knows what God's God is actually meaning. And so he twists it. He twists the word of God for his tempting purposes. And he wants us to believe false doctrine. How many times in the New Testament do we read from the apostles warning us against false doctrine? I think if you read the all the epistles to the different churches, there there is no one topic that is that is talked about more and warned against more than the, this this topic of of false teaching and false doctrine. I mean that that's that's probably the greatest issue that the the church faced that we see because that's what is is corrected the most. And we're still facing that issue. It hasn't gone away. Satan is is rampant, trying to deceive people about who God is and what His Word says. And so Jesus knows. And responds, Jesus knows these verses that Satan is quoting are both verses taken out of context, and they are verses that are contrary to Scripture as a whole when they are taken out and used in this way. When Satan is is conducting a lie, sometimes his his best strategy is to include ninety nine percent of the truth. But then that one percent, that one little sliver, is a lie, and and that throws the whole thing off. That's why that's why I believe Paul writes to Timothy in Second Timothy chapter two verse fifteen: "Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth." Mm-hmm. Paul is writing that to the young evangelist Timothy, and it's important for certainly important for evangelists, but it's all it's it's important for every Christian. We got to be prepared to correctly handle the word of truth because we see here three different times Satan uses the word to deceive and to lie and to tempt Jesus. And and if we're going to be able to to not let that kind of a temptation get us, to not be tricked into thinking God's word saying something that it isn't, we need to to be able to correctly handle it. Yeah. So Jesus response his response to Satan here Verse 12 says, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So Jesus responds, showing that Satan's false doctrine is against Scripture. Mm. So it isn't just a random Scripture. It is decisive that he uses this passage to show that what Satan just said is a, is a scripture taken out of context and is is not what that means. That is not what that means. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Mm. Um, so in all three instances, we have three different 
types of lies. They're all lies, but they're three different types of lies. Trying to deceive Christ about who his identity is. Trying to deceive Jesus about who's in control. And trying to deceive Jesus about who God is. And Satan is trying to do all three of those things with us. We see all three of those temptations today. That's exactly what I was thinking when you're listing those off. Those aren't These aren't temptations that didn't work against Jesus, and so Satan threw him out of his playbook. He's still using these very same tactics today. And and you you mentioned it before. These are the tactics that he had changed. He's kind of changed his playbook to these, and these tactics. We see how Jesus wisely uses the word of truth. He uses the scripture to respond to Satan. And in doing so, he defeated Satan for a time in the in these temptations. Now, Jesus always defeated Satan in temptation. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying, it. you know, as we look at verse 13, Satan left him until an opportune time. So there were other times where, where Satan does tempt Jesus, and Jesus remains perfect. But we learn here that we need to pay attention of how Satan lies. And we need to pay attention so that we can respond in a way that is not only going to counteract what Satan's done, but in a way that's actually helpful to us. Because so many, so many times we are tempted and we're tempted and we don't really understand why, as Christians, so many Christians don't understand why they can't get past this temptation. And a big part of it is they don't understand how Satan is actually tempting them. Mm. So if we're not paying attention to how Satan is tempting us, then we're not going to have a good response. We're not going to know where the answer is. Yeah, I, I hear you, man. We're on the same page. So, we have to pay attention to the lie, or it will be hard to fight. Um, it will be hard to fight the lie if we're not paying attention. Thankfully... As Christians, we have Jesus who has blessed us with the armor of God for the purpose of battling Satan. That is that is a key purpose of he the ha- armor of God. He hasn't left us alone, thankfully. So, you know, we have many defenses with the armor of God, but also the offensive sword. Not only do we have several defenses, the helmet, the, the breastplate, and and other things, but we also have the offensive sword, which we see Christ use here in Luke to successfully send Satan away. And sometimes the sword can be used as a defensive weapon, too. Yep. Parry and strike. Absolutely. So, as we come out of this thing of dealing with the temptations of Satan, we look at Luke chapter 4, verse 14. And it says, And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through all the surrounding district. So what we see is something was clearly different about Jesus, and people were noticing. And we see in that verse, he came in the power of the Spirit, and that that speaks to the authoritative way that he presented himself to, to the people around him, in the way that he taught, in the way that he preached, in the way that he healed. Everything that he was doing was in this authoritative way that were, that people were noticing in verse 14, 15, 20 through 22, and 37. All of those verses speak to people noticing 
something was different about him, and it was because of this authoritativeness that he had about him. Now, as he's preaching in this way, as he's preaching in this authoritative way, people don't like it. (laughs) Um, Jesus was constantly rejected. And, I mean, that's a fulfillment of prophecy that he was rejected. He, He was constantly rejected, and specifically in verses 22 and 37, it says, verse 22, the last part, is this not Joseph's son? So right there, they're beginning to reject him, and Jesus Jesus responds, and then when he responds, the the first thing that it says in verse twenty eight, all the people in the synagogues were filled with rage as they heard these things, and then verse thirty seven, and the report about him was spreading into every locality in the in the surrounding district, and I bring up verse thirty seven because. People a lot of times think that he had these big crowds following him and everybody loved him. Like he was a a uh, celebrity? Yeah. But that's just that's just not the case. See, he was constantly being rejected by people, especially people from his hometown as we see here. And so people were not just following be- him because they loved him. They were following him because they were trying to discredit him. Well, not only that, sometimes they wanted to follow him just to to see him do miracles because they wanted to be entertained and, and see um, someone healed or, or a demon cast out or something miraculous happen because it's, oh, you know, it's it's cool. Let's watch this happen. It wasn't anything to do with Jesus' person or his character or his nature. It was all just they wanted to see a show, and that's why Jesus at times refused to perform miracles because he knew why they wanted him to do it. And even when they saw the miracles, they wouldn't recognize because of their their hardness of hearts that he had this authority because he is the Christ. Yeah. And so it it starts there in that verse 22 with them questioning his authority because of who his earthly father is, Joseph. And I don't think that's a discredit to who Joseph was, but he just to them is another person. Yeah. Uh, to them at this moment, he's, he's you know, why is Joseph's son this person that gets to speak with such authority? Well, it's he, he he's presenting himself this way because he is the Christ. And, you know, he answers, honestly, Jesus' answer makes it seem like he's unsurprised that his hometown doesn't like him. Mm-hmm. Um, so the news spread of his miracles, his teaching, his preaching— uh, his love and understanding, and he was drawing crowds like crazy. Uh, it, it spreads rapidly. We'll see in the next chapter how rapidly the news of him has been spreading. But many read about the crowds, like I said, and they just assume that because of all these wonderful things that everybody loved him. But the Bible is very clear that he was actually rejected and despised, and many followed him out of rage, hoping to discredit who he was. And over and over again, they failed. Yeah. Um, with that said, you know, people are trying to discredit him, but as they are trying to discredit him, and when he does do these miracles, they're trying to discredit him, but he again and again is proving that he's already the Savior. That's what he's doing when he does these miracles. You know, we, we in this chapter we see him casting out demons and healing people who were sick. And 
part of it is, yeah, of course, Jesus wants to heal people that are sick and, and show love and compassion to them. But if you notice, these miracles don't happen because the person that was sick or the person that was possessed by a demon showed, showed this great faith and then Jesus rewarded them. At, at times, they didn't even say anything to Jesus. It was just Jesus is doing these miracles to prove that he is the Son of God. Yeah, and so we see Jesus as a healer here. Uh, verse 39, uh, and standing over her, this talking about uh, Simon, who we most of us know as Peter, standing over her, uh, he rebuked the fever, fever and it left her, and she immediately got up and waited on them. Do we realize, we don't, many times we read stuff like that and we don't realize that in him doing that, he is proving to be the Savior. Yeah. And notice the word here used here, he rebuked the fever. It doesn't just say healed, he rebuked the fever. And so by rebuking sickness, this is really interesting, by rebuking sickness, which is part of the consequence of sin, he is already replacing the consequence the consequence with life. Hmm. And that's something that we don't recognize. Yeah, I don't think I thought about that before. So, he is already the Savior. But, it's interesting, at the end of this chapter, as we begin to wrap things up, how the end of the chapter plays out is, although he's already the Savior, he makes an important point that his... The time is not yet. It, it is not yet time for him to complete this mission of being the the Messiah or being the Christ. But he, before he says anything about that, there is a pretty significant thing that we actually find in one of the other gospels, which I knew you wanted to to mention. Yeah. So when we're reading through the gospels, there's going to be a lot of times where you read the. I don't like the word story um, because a lot of times you hear story today and you think something that was made up. Historical so I'll, account. I'll, I'll, I'll use the word account, yeah. <laughs> when we when we read the account of different events and, and things that have happened in the Gospels, a lot of times what you read in Luke will also show up in Matthew and Mark and, and vice versa with all those. They're, they're called the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, because they, they go together a lot. But... A parallel passage that I found interesting was, so here in Luke chapter 4, in verse 42, it says, When day came, Jesus left and went to a secluded place. And the crowds were searching for him, and came to him and tried to keep him from going away from them. But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. So we don't really see what I'm wanting to, to hone in on from Luke here. But the, the parallel scripture over in, in the Gospel of Mark, in Mark chapter 1, verse 35, Mark uh, takes the account this way. In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. Simon and his companions searched for him. They found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. So we see from Mark's gospel here a little lesson, if you will, on Jesus' prayer time. Mm. Something you mentioned earlier um, 
kind of made me think of this, that we can let the busyness of life aid Satan in his temptation to draw us away from God. Yeah. And as we studied through Luke chapter 4, Jesus was extremely busy. He was healing He was healing people. Absolutely. Healing the sick, um, taking away fevers. Uh, he was casting out demons. He was preaching. He was fighting with Satan in the wilderness. Jesus was a busy, busy man. He always had crowds after him. And... And so what we see here is Jesus needed to take some time to to go be off by himself. And, and I can really understand and relate to this, and, and I'm sure you can too. I like my alone time. Yeah. Um, I, I like hanging out with people and being social, sure, but at the end of the day, you know, peaceful time by myself is sometimes what I look forward to the most. And so we see here in, in Mark 135, Jesus creates time in his schedule, his busy schedule, to be alone, but not just to enjoy some alone time by himself, but to make time for prayer. Yeah. And, and I know that prayer, just from all of the different Christians that I've talked to, and especially in my own experience, prayer is is something that almost every person I ask, if you ask them, how, how's your prayer life? So so common. The answer is, I need. I'm not praying enough, or I need to be praying more. And I think that the busyness of life can can get in the way sometimes. But what we see from Jesus here, he gets up in the early morning, while it was still dark. So the sun's not even up yet. Jesus gets up after a, after a, a long you know week or or whatever period of time it was where. He's, he's preaching, he's performing miracles and healing sick people and casting out demons. He's, he's busy, but he makes time in the early morning before the sun gets up to go to a, to a secluded place and to pray. And I think that's just, that, that's something that really struck me this week when I was reading Luke chapter 4. And it, it, it inspires me and motivates me to, to do better at Despite my busy schedule, creating times, ma- making times in there where I ha- where I sacrifice from other things. We see Jesus here; he sacrifices his own sleep for this, to to have a time amidst all the busyness, to go to a secluded place place and to pray. It's very much in, along the lines of the idea of of the Sabbath, which you know a lot of people. You know, everybody's always taught it's the day of rest, but Mm -hmm. it wasn't a day of rest where you sit around and be lazy. It was a day where people would take time to acknowledge and thank and thank God for the things that he's doing and dwelling and being grateful and resting in the fact that God's got us. And that's what prayer is, too, is it is this... I love the phrase that prayer is prayer is when is people trusting and relying on God. That that is that is how we show God. That is a significant way that we show God that we trust and rely on Him. Because if we just trust and rely on ourselves to handle all of the the troubles and challenges that life has. If we think we've got everything handled and everything's on our shoulders, we're never gonna pray. We're gonna we're gonna fight all of life's battles alone, and as a man, 
that, that is a, a temptation that I face because yeah. I like to be independent. I like to, to handle all of life's problems on my own. I don't like to have to rely on, on anyone else. And th- that's a real challenge in my prayer life. I, I, I've got to get better, and, and Jesus inspires me for this at creating times in his busy schedule and even getting up before the sun comes up to go have a, t- a time of prayer to show his, that he is relying and dependent on, on his relationship with the Father. Yeah, absolutely. So he, he's doing this, he prays, he's, he's, he's showing that he relies on the Father, and that leads into him, re- him knowing and being confident in his mission. And his mission right now, he, he says in verse 43, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. So, it's not yet time. It was, it was not the time for people to know yet that he was the Christ. Many, many ask the question here in these verses, that it says the demons were coming out uh and many were shouting, you are the son of God, but he was rebuking them, and he would not allow them to speak because they knew him to be the Christ. So people ask the question, why rebuke the demons for uh, confirming who he is? And many ask the question, when we look at John chapter 2, why does Jesus question Mary's request to turn, to do something about the the wine running out at the wedding? And it's because it was not yet time for Jesus to give up his life and do that and do that part of his messiahhood. Yeah. The the part of his mission right now was I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also for I was sent for this purpose. Right now the main goal of his mission is to preach the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. So that when he dies people understand that his death is so that through his shed blood we can enter the kingdom that he's preaching right now. And he's got to go to the, to these other cities to preach, but also to 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 do other miracles and things too, so that he can continue, as we were talking about earlier, proving that he was the savior, that he was the Messiah. Yeah. So he first needed to preach the kingdom in order to prepare people to join the kingdom through him later on. Mm-hmm. Um. So with that, that is. The end of chapter four, you got anything else? I think we we covered everything I wanted to hit on. All right. Well, thank you guys for listening. Again, leave a like and a comment. Uh, Ask questions if you've got them. There's a lot of ways to to contact us and ask questions. Don't forget to hang out with us next week. Put the armor of God on as both defensive and offensive. And may grace, mercy, and peace, peace be with you. Go bear fruit, and so prove to be one of his disciples.